Have you ever wondered what a Christian smells like? What like an archetypal Christian, if a Christian is trying to be as Christian as possible, actually smells like? Um, the sense of smell is actually a wonderful thing. Apparently, it's the first sense we use after we're born. So babies use their sense of smell to get to milk so that they don't get eaten by a tiger. It also accounts for 75 to 95% of our taste, apparently. So you can hold your nose, bite into an onion, and it tastes like an apple. I don't think I believe that, but apparently that's the case. Up to the age of four, no matter how bad the smell is that a one, two, three-year-old is smelling, it simply interesting to them. Doesn't smell repulsive at all, which explains a lot of the trauma that I've had over the years of changing nappies. And finally, only 25%, very small number, 25% of people suffer from the unbelievably bad smell after you relieve yourself once having asparagus. Now, only 25% of you will understand that, but um, we are special. But we also refer, don't we, to our sense of smell in the figurative sense, don't we? So we refer to it in almost like a gut reaction. So we say something doesn't smell right, or even worse, something smells a bit fishy, like it's not right. It kind of uh, covers a lot of our senses. So have you ever considered what a Christian in the figurative, in the instinctive reaction type sense should actually smell like? And the reason I ask is because I think often Christians get their smell wrong. I think often Christians smell a little bit off. And there's one of two equal but opposite errors, errors we fall into as Christians. And the first error is we smell a little bit too clean. We think that to be a Christian, you have to talk a certain way. You have to look a certain way. You have to act a certain way. And only if you fulfill those things, you're actually going to really smell like a proper Christian. So we do strange things, like we fake smile at people, even though we feel miserable. Or we give lots of people hugs, or we drive ourselves into the ground trying to help every single person we come across. And when we inevitably get rejected by people, we say strange things as Christians. My current favorite is that we should really just love on someone, which is a very strange thing to say. No one should ever say that. And the result of these sorts of kind of weird things we do as Christians when we're trying really hard to be clean and to be good and to be a proper Christian is actually anyone that comes into contact with us isn't buying it. They can see straight through it and we look like frauds. And then also for our own sake, we actually just exhaust ourselves. We become totally exhausted by this pressure, this burden of trying to do and act and say the right things all the time. So sometimes we smell too clean. The other equal but opposite error is we smell exactly the same as everyone else. So in an effort to be relevant or to fit in or to be cool, we actually think we just need to party as hard, we need to love as hard, we need to work just as hard as everyone else. And so we and people in this process of trying to be more like the world and we work very hard at doing it and we hope that people will find out about Jesus by some sort of spiritual osmosis. And the problem with that side of things is we end up smelling like absolutely nothing at all. We just fit in. And it makes no difference. In fact, you might as well not come to church on Sunday. You should probably find a hobby instead. I would suggest reading in the newspaper or sleeping in. So what should we actually smell like as Christians? What should an archetypal proper Christian actually smell like? Well, Paul actually writes about this in his letter to the church 
in Corinth. I'm going to read it in a second. It's 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. And the context of this letter is Paul writing to this church in Corinth that he actually set up. So he went there, he told them about Jesus. As a result, loads of people decided to follow Jesus, put their faith in Jesus. And so he sets up this church and now he's gone away and he's setting up other churches. And as he's writing back to them later on, the first two chapters of the letter are actually pretty depressing. All he's talking about is the suffering and the persecution that he's experiencing as a part of being a Christian leader. But the problem in Corinth is other Christian leaders have taken over and they're actually peddling a totally different gospel to the gospel that Paul originally took to the church. You see, church for Paul is actually about Jesus. But these other Christian leaders were selling this version of the gospel that said, actually, you need to succeed or you need to perform in order to be able to be a proper Christian, in order to actually smell like a real Christian. And they're saying about Paul, who was a distant memory by then, that actually Paul is far too weak. He's been imprisoned far too many times. He's far too inadequate to actually have any authority as a leader. So these guys are saying to these Christians, this fledgling group of people coming to faith again and again all the time, church is growing. You need to be a bit more like us. You need to be qualified like us and ignore Paul. And Paul essentially is writing to say that is a complete misunderstanding of what the gospel is actually about. And so here's what he says to them in the end of chapter 2 from verse 14. But thanks be to God, he says, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ, the smell of Jesus among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. And this is him contradicting the other Christian leaders there. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Jesus, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living of God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence, he says, we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves, in our own success, in our own performance to claim anything, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Here's the point of what Paul is trying to say in that passage. Firstly, Christians should smell intoxicating. He says in verse 15, for one, for we are to God the pleasing aroma, to one with the aroma that brings death, and to the other an aroma that brings life. I don't know if any of you have ever tried mint sauce shower gel. Anyone ever tried mint sauce shower gel? Yeah, so I was around a friend. First time I ever tried mint sauce shower gel, I was around a friend's and I never tried it, never come across it before. And as you do when you sleep around a mate, so you kind of steal their shower gel uh, and then hope they don't find out. I'm in the shower and I see this mint sauce shower gel, so I pour loads of it out on my hand as you do, apply it liberally to every crevice and crease. 
And with seconds of applying this mint sauce shower gel, I am literally running out of the shower naked down to my friend, accusing him of trying to poison me in the shower. My whole body felt like it was on fire. Literally everything was tingling. Now, the thing about mint sauce shower gel is I absolutely love it now. I have it every morning. I think it's the best thing ever. You can't actually never buy counterfeit mint sauce shower gel. It's never as good. The real stuff really does hurt, but it's worth using because it wakes you up. It's invigorating. Some people hate it. I absolutely love it. What Paul's saying here is, to some people, depending on your perspective on Jesus, Jesus, the aroma, the scent of Jesus, the scent of Christ off of us as Christians is either going to smell like life in all its fullness or it's going to smell like death. What's the perspective? The perspective is where you think the story actually ends. Because we believe that Jesus, yes, died on the cross, and I'll come to why he died on the cross in a second, but as Christians we believe actually he rose from the dead. If we believe that Jesus is just a historical figure who said some nice things about being nice to each other and about fluffy bunnies, but then actually ultimately died on the cross and has nothing really to say to us now, then the smell of Jesus is going to smell like death. But if you can move on from that and realize that actually Jesus defeated death once and for all, came back to life, didn't just come back to life for his own benefit, but did it so that he can fill us with his life-giving spirit, then when you smell the scent, the aroma of Jesus, it's going to feel like life. Life in all its fullness. And that's what Paul's saying. So as Christians, point one, we need to be a little bit more saucy. But here's the key of the passage. And this is the whole point of what he's actually saying here. This smell has absolutely nothing to do with our own performance. Has absolutely nothing to do with our own abilities. In verse 14, he says this. He says, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Captives in Christ's triumphal procession. What is a triumphal procession? We wouldn't know, but um, back in the day, this is obviously Roman Empire times. And every time a general were to conquer an area of the world for the Roman Empire, they would throw a huge procession for him and his army when they came back. So what would happen is the musicians would go out through the streets, the crowds would gather in their thousands, and they would process all the spoils that they had from the war out in front. There'd be musicians, politicians, there'd be state statesmen and then there'd be the army and then there'd be the people that were lucky enough not to die in the conflict who were now captives to the Roman Empire and then the finale, the kind of climax of this triumphal procession was this Roman general sitting on a chariot led by four horses adorned in this beautiful purple robe with gold encrusted edges and jewels and he would be celebrated as the true conquering uh, general of the army. Now, here's the thing about Paul's little analogy there. Where do you think you are in that procession as Christians? Where do we think we come when we think about the victory that he's actually talking about there in terms of what Jesus has done in his life and by his death on the cross and by his resurrection? Well, the truth is here, the metaphor that Paul's trying to bring out is that we're the captives being led by Jesus. And this is the point. This whole thing isn't about us. This whole thing isn't about you. It's not about this church. It's not about me. It's not about how we can succeed or perform. The whole point of Christianity, the whole reason we need to be able to smell like we smell to be Christians so that we can see heaven come on earth is about Jesus. 
Jesus is the one we glorify. Jesus is the one on the chariot. Jesus is the one who has won the victory. And the thing is, to the proud, to the people that actually think they can do it in their own strength, this is actually going to be a little bit offensive. It's quite an offensive message, that. That actually you're not up to the task. I'm not up to the task. None of us here can actually do it. It sounds offensive, but to those of us who actually are able to come to terms with the fact that we're not enough, this is actually a huge relief. This is a massive burden lifted off of our shoulders. It's a little bit like the difference between good advice and good news. I don't know if you're like me, but when I receive good advice, particularly if it's from someone who's quite inspiring as a person, I love it. Like, I love good advice. I love to think about good advice. I love to write down good advice. I like to sometimes tell other people the good advice as though I've actually done it. But when it comes to doing the good advice or following it through, it actually feels a little bit like a burden to me. It feels like it's another thing that I have to add into my life. Like, it's not busy enough already. I have to wake up in the morning and I have to do some press-ups. Or I have to turn vegan. Or I have to eat less meat. Or I have to do something. Good advice is wonderful until you actually have to do it. And it starts to feel a little bit more like a burden. Now, good advice is great. And I think Jesus had loads of good things to say about how to live our lives. But the problem with good advice is if that is the way in which we achieve the victory, which Paul's talking about here, it actually just becomes religion. And the issue with religion is it's a little bit like a ladder. And when you're on a ladder, if you're down here and God's up there and the advice is you need to get as close as you can to God up the ladder, the problem of being on the ladder is there's always going to be people higher up the ladder. And when you see people higher up the ladder who are actually following the advice in a better way and doing a better job of smelling like a Christian in their own strength, then you end up just feeling miserable. You feel like you can't actually do what you need to do in order to be able to reflect those other people and to be able to get closer to God. And the bigger issue than looking up and feeling miserable and feeling inadequate and feeling weak is if you look down the ladder, there's always people lower down who are doing a worse job at being a Christian. And the human nature is that you look down at these people and you you pity them. And you look at them and you think, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. And that's even worse. It's even more toxic to our faith. Good advice is like that. And that's exactly what these guys in the city of Corinth were selling to the church there. They're saying, actually, it's about your competence. You need to commend yourself. You need letters of recommendation. This is about you and your performance. What's the difference between good advice and good news? The good news is that it's already happened. Jesus has already won the victory. The whole point is that we can come to Jesus as inadequate, as weak, and as unable to do this thing as we are. And we come to him and he gives us the power and the strength to do what we need to do and be who we're called to be. Because the truth is Jesus has won the battle. He's lived the life that we should actually live. If we really want to live life in all its fullness, we should live a life a little bit like Jesus. We should probably follow the commands of Jesus. It's going to mean that we're going to have a better life. It's going to feel more conducive to actually having life in all its fullness. The problem is it's very difficult. But Jesus did it. Jesus did it exactly right. He was perfect in every way. He also died the death that was, is an inevitable consequence of basically us failing to live the life that we should be leading. And as a result, died on the cross. But not only that, he then rose again to defeat the power of all the stuff that stops us from smelling right in the first place. And then he gives us his empowering spirit so that we can smell the same. It's the difference between good advice and good news. 
as some people have mentioned, we always pray for people after the service up here. And in general, what we're doing when we pray for people is we're asking the Spirit of God to fill people. Basically, we just believe that there's always more of the presence of the Holy Spirit and we can open ourselves to experience more, but just receive the benefits of being filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we um, train the prayer team to share words that they get. So they share a sense of what they feel like God is saying to a particular person, a little bit like we did um, as a church a second ago. And there's always a few words that stick out for people or tend to keep coming up again and again and again and keep coming back. And there's one word for me that has stuck with me for the last five, six years that's been incredibly important in my life. And I was receiving prayer just as we do and someone laid their hand on my shoulder and they said, I just see this image of you standing in front of this huge table and the table's full of smudges and crumbs and you're you're going up to the table and you've got this cloth and you're just wiping this table clean and getting it perfect. And then when you step back to look at the table and to admire it, these smudges start appearing again on the table again. All these crumbs start appearing. And so you go back and you start cleaning it again. You start trying to get it right. And then you step back and this table just starts to look dirty again. You go back and you're getting increasingly frustrated and angry with what's happening. And this person praying for me said, I feel like God's saying to you, that this isn't about your own ability to make stuff right. This isn't about your own ability to make things clean, to be able to do everything in the right way. You need to trust that Jesus has already done it. And if you go to him, then you'll be able to actually live life in its fullness and you won't have that burden of constantly trying to do it in your own strength. So it's not down to us to smell like Jesus. So how do we actually smell like Jesus. If we're supposed to be like mint sauce, if we're supposed to be this invigorating scent of the presence of Jesus, how do we actually do it? Well, the key is there in verse 14. He says, he leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. It's not about us, it's about Jesus. And then he says, and he uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. To spread the aroma of the knowledge of Jesus, of God everywhere. And that word knowledge doesn't actually do justice to the word for knowledge in Greek because it doesn't just mean the transfer of information. It's, just not, it's not just about knowing the right facts. That word knowledge actually means a deep and meaningful connection with God. Its Hebrew counterpart in the um, Old Testament in Genesis is basically when the writer of Genesis says that Adam knew his wife and they became one. Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting this is about sex, but it does say that it's about this intimate connection with God. It would be a little bit like if um, you were to be given this job of being an ambassador of a country, but you'd never been to that country, and you weren't raised in that country, you weren't born in that country, but suddenly you've been given this job to be the ambassador. Now, you could read tons of books about that country, you could research loads of facts, you could read the Wikipedia page, you could chat to loads of people who have grown up in that culture and in that country, but when you actually got to the job of being the ambassador of that country pretty quickly, I think you'll probably get found out as a fake and it'd be a pretty difficult job to do and it's exactly the same with us as Christians 
If we really want to smell like Jesus, if we want the aroma of Christ to be flooding out of every pore of our body, we can't actually just rely on secondhand information. We can't rely on just knowing enough stuff. We need to have that deep and meaningful and intimate connection with him. It's the only way we're ever going to be able to do it. Jesus talks about it in the Gospels as being like abiding in him. So he has this image of a vine and branches. We're the branches, he's the vine. He says, abide in him and then you'll produce fruit. You'll start to smell like a Christian. Now the thing about abiding is it just means living. It means living in the presence of Jesus. And so the whole point, how we actually begin to smell like Christians, how we actually become authentic to our faith is we're supposed to make our home in his presence. We often say here that we are most at home in the presence of God. We are supposed to make this place in this, in this home, which is the world, which isn't perfect, which isn't where we're supposed to be. We often say that actually heaven and earth were never supposed to be two separate places. Like heaven was supposed to be united with earth. It should have been one and the same. And the point of us as Christians is we're creating heaven on earth through the power of Jesus. So Jesus' kingdom is coming. It's what we were just singing about the spirit breaking, about King Jesus, about revival, is we're asking for God to send heaven on earth and the only way we can do it as Christians is if we live in heaven and so that when we're walking around we're bringing it on earth if we want to smell like Jesus we need to make his presence our home how much time are we actually spending with him to what extent would we say we actually do live in his presence that we are constantly with him what would it look like if we all did that as a church? If we committed to actually making this deep and meaningful relationship with him our priority? Well, a little bit later in chapter three, I didn't read it earlier, but Paul then talks about the benefits of smelling like Jesus, of being more like him. He says, now if the ministry that brought death, and he's just talking about the Old Testament there, so these laws that you would follow in order to be um, uh, basically a part of the family of God, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory. There was benefits to it. The glory of God was poured out so that the Israelites could not look steadily in the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory although it was. And this is the point. He says, will not the ministry of the Spirit, which is the presence of God, be even more glorious? How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness, of being in connection, being right with God? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. What's glory? Glory is just the presence of God. In fact, directly translated, it means the weight of God. What we felt in the worship there when we were worshiping, it's like the weight of God comes on us as a people. We should be constantly living in that. So as we feel the presence, we feel the weight of God, we go out into our workplaces, into our homes, amongst our family, with our friends. And we don't even need to talk about Jesus, but the aroma of Christ is just flowing out of every pore. And people can receive life through it. But there's one important step for us, and the important step for us is to be okay with weakness. To be okay with being inadequate, to be okay with not being enough. And Paul goes on and writes more in this letter, but at the end, he kind of summarizes the whole thing. He talks about, this is my main thing that I'm saying against these peddlers of the gospel who are saying it's all about success and performance. He says this, he says, um, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. Who boasts about weakness? 
Like we're not taught to do that in our culture, in our jobs, in our work. We're not taught to boast about weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast even more about my weakness. Why does he say that? He says, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So that the glory of God, the power, the weight of his presence, the aroma of Christ might actually rest on him. So how do we feel about boasting about weakness? about being able to be vulnerable with each other. When we're vulnerable, we feel exposed, don't we? We feel naked. We feel like we're being looked at. It feels like we don't have it all together. We're inadequate. We feel shame. Well, the beauty of that verse is that if we are able to get to that place of boasting about weakness, of being inadequate and being okay with it, but going to Jesus with it, the promise is that his power will literally clothe us. Another way of saying rest on us, some translations say the power of Christ will clothe us. We'll be clothed with him. We'll look more like him and become more like him. And um, a lot of you will know, but this week's been a horrific week for us. As a family, um, Lulu, our middle daughter, was burnt by boiling water from a kettle really badly on her back. And as a result, has been in and out of hospital this last week, but is probably going to have to have a, a skin graft in a week's time. And um, thank you for all those who have been praying. We've really appreciated it. And the prayer is that essentially this area of skin that looks like it needs to be a graft is healed. And so therefore she wouldn't have to need a graft. But it's obviously been awful for us this last week in and out of hospital. But the truth is we came back from holiday um, and it happened literally the day after we came back. And we had two weeks away and we came back so excited about this term at church. We're at a point in this church where this next kind of season up to Christmas and this year is actually incredibly important. Like this is the time where we really will see some growth here and we're going to start to introduce midweek groups so we can still um, be able to know each other in a good way because it's getting a little bit big on Sundays. And we came back fired up and ready and really up for it. And we have all these plans about what we want to do at St. Peter's, all that we want to see and the amazing things we want God to do. And then this happened to Lulu and we've been completely taken out as a result result. But the thing that I feel like God's just been saying to us as a family, and I think us as a church, again and again and again, is it's all right. Like the victory actually isn't ours. It's not our job to make this work. It's not about good advice, like 10 steps to actually do a church. The point is Jesus has already done it. And we're joining in with his victory. We're joining in with what he has already done. We're clothing ourselves with his power in our vulnerability, in our weakness, in our inadequacy. And we're watching him transform us as a result, but also transform our communities, transform our families, transform our church. So let's stand and we're going to have some time praying.